Blog Talk Radio.
This is Abayomi Azikaway, and welcome back to another edition of the Pan-African Journal. The Pan-African Journal is an audio news magazine. It's brought to you here on a weekly basis. Uh, I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikaway. Today is Sunday, uh, January the 30th, uh, 2022. We're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. We'd like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in once again uh, to another edition of our program. Coming up later on, uh, we'll bring you our Pan-African Newswire report. Uh, We'll have dispatches on the upcoming African Union uh, 35th Ordinary Summit uh, in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. The African Union also plans to deepen its involvement in efforts to resolve the political crisis in the Republic of Sudan. In Southern Africa, a former Zimbabwe cabinet minister has been recruited to serve on the Southern African Development Community Panel of Elders. And the president of Tanzania has requested prayers for her office and the people of this East African state. In the second hour, uh, we continue to examine events in the West African countries of Burkina Faso and Mali, where the regional economic community of West African states has sought to return the governments uh, back to civilian rule. Finally, we review some of the most important issues taking place on the continent and internationally. These and other features will be brought to you uh, during the course of our program, so stay tuned. We'll take a musical interlude, uh, this time with the orchestra Bob Bob uh, from the West African state of Senegal uh, from the album entitled Sibu Oja. Let's listen in.
Oh, Torai, 
Welcome back. And uh, you're listening to uh, the Pan African Journal Worldwide uh, Radio Broadcast. And uh, that was the music of the Orchestra Baobab from the uh, West African state of Senegal, uh, from the recording entitled Cebu Oja. And uh, right now we want to move into our Pan-African Newswire segment of our program. And our lead story uh, deals with the upcoming African Union Summit uh, taking place in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia, the headquarters of the African Union Secretariat. Ethiopia has uh, thanked all uh, African Union member states, uh, leaders, for their sound decision to hold the 35th Ordinary Session in Addis Ababa and their being by its side at critical times. Africa is at the verge of entertaining philosophies that benefit the continent and help come up with economic and political unification. In so doing, the effort of amassing Africa's huge amount of natural resources for the end result of developing external bodies can be made history. Africans have now created unwavering bonds to grow together. Uh, There are a number of manifestations along this line. To mention but a few, uh, when there was the unremitting false propaganda and battle going on against Ethiopia, and all Africans were heard asserting that it was a battle against Africa as well, and hence had to be faced in unison. Uh, They said, as attacking Ethiopia is attacking Africa, it needs to immediately halt. The African Union summit in Addis is one way of reasserting this idea and conveying a clear message to the rest of the world, no matter how enormous the pressure on Ethiopia and whatever negative utterances thrown against uh, weaken it, no one can break the historical bond between Ethiopians and the rest of Africa as the former has come to be concerned, a concern of the entire continent and an emblem of continental independence and freedom. The same article goes on to say that true Africans have been able to successfully fight colonialism under their bonding umbrella, the African Union since long back, and the 35th anniversary session of the AU Assembly, heads of state and government session, is going to be held in Addis Ababa, despite the multifarious conspiracies not to hold the summit here by fabricating a number of lame reasons, such as Addis is not safe, the country is in a recurrent conflict, COVID-19 is rapid, and so on. Besides, the efforts of the African Union can help the continent accelerate the process of integration, thereby enabling it to play its rightful role in the global economy by addressing 
multifaceted social, economic, and political problems, coupled uh, with certain negative aspects of globalization. The summit has been a regular ritual to help heads discuss all the urgent and important issues of the continent and reach some agreement. And uh, in other news uh, taking place uh, across the continent, the African Union Peace and Security Council underscored that the organization must continue playing a role in the resolution of the political crisis in Sudan and called to prepare a plan to mediate the conflict. The African Union should continue to accompany Sudan during its transition, including through the efforts of the chairperson of the African Union Commission, Sudan's neighboring countries, and the intergovernmental assistance on development. Uh, the East African Organization uh, reads a communication coming from the council uh, who issued a statement uh, and held a meeting this last past week. Through different meetings and resolutions during the past 20 years, the African Union and the United Nations agreed to establish a strong partnership to end conflicts in Africa and uh, to support peace operations led by the African Union. This partnership tasked the African Union and sub-regional bodies with resolution of the conflicts on the continent. Based on the principle of complementary, uh, the United Nations would provide the needed materials and technical support to achieve this mission. Partnership tasked the African Union and sub-regional bodies with the resolution of conflicts on the continent. Now, in this context, the Peace and Security Council requested the chairperson of the African Union Commission continue to work uh, with the military-led Sovereign Council, the other stakeholders, and to undertake a follow-on mission to Sudan to enhance efforts aimed at restoring peace and stability there. The 15-member body tasked the African Union Commission in consultation with all relevant stakeholders to establish a mechanism aimed at supporting Sudan and coordinate the international community's efforts and ensure the full involvement of the African Union in supporting Sudan further reads the communique. And you're listening to uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment uh, of the Pan-African Journal. I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikawe, and uh, in Zimbabwe, former cabinet minister and Zimbabwe African National Union Patriotic Front Secretary for Finance, Patrick Shanamaza, and ex-diplomat Dr. Andrew Mtetwa have landed uh, top regional posts after they were appointed to the Southern African Development Community Panel of Elders and Mediation Reference Group, respectively. The appointments are a demonstration of confidence uh, in the country by the regional leaders. The appointments of the two uh, were made following approval by the 41st Ordinary Summit of the SAC Heads of State and Government held in Lilongwe, Malawi, in August of last year. In a statement released uh, yesterday, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs and International Trade said the Panel of Elders and Mediation Reference Group were part of the Southern African Development Community Mediation and Conflict Prevention and Preventative Diplomacy Structure established by the Southern African Development Community Heads of State and Government in August of 2014. Ministry of uh, Foreign Affairs and International Trade spokesperson Mr. Levette Mugiho said, quote, the structure is aimed at strengthening SADAC's mediation capacities and 
timelessly preempt violent conflict. He will be joining four other eminent personalities that include former head of state and government and former government ministers from other SADAC countries on the SADAC panel of elders. His appointment is for a four-year term until August of 2025, said Mr. Mohijo. Uh, Shinamaza has an illustrious career in government since the independence of Zimbabwe in 1980, where he rose to become the country's attorney general before being appointed cabinet minister, holding the portfolios of Minister of Justice, Legal and Parliamentary Affairs, and Finance and Economic Development. Dr. Mtetwa is a senior lecturer at the Zimbabwe National Defense University and former ambassador of Zimbabwe to uh, Belgium, Ethiopia, South Africa, and Zambia. Ambassador Mketwa is a former permanent secretary in the Ministry of Foreign Affairs and has been a career uh, diplomat. He will serve on the mediation reference group with eight other former ambassadors and high-level officials from the Southern African Development Community region who were appointed for their demonstrable technical expertise in strategic studies, conflict resolution, and preventive diplomacy. He will also serve for a term of four years ending in 2025 in August. And um, finally, regard uh, to uh, developments taking place on the African continent, we want to remind our listeners uh, that the Pan-African Newswire is available 24 hours a day and seven days a week. And to conclude uh, this segment of our program, President Samia Saluhu Hassan said on yesterday uh, that uh, Muslims and Christian religious leaders I should help her in prayers to undertake her presidential roles. Uh, This is according to an article that was published in the Tanzania Daily News out of Dar es Salaam by Esther Takwa. The article goes on to say that um, the president made the call during a phone conversation at a live gathering of religious leaders in Dar es Salaam who met uh, for her 62nd birthday, which occurred on Thursday. Uh, She said, I ask God to help me and accept your prayers. So that I can serve the country both now and in the future. I believe that your prayers will lead me to where God intended. So please be with me. Keep praying for me, and thank you so much, President Samir said in a phone call. Uh, Tanzania Chief Chek Mufti Abubakar Zubair told the congregation that it was in God's perfect will and plan for President Samir to be the sixth leader of the country. He warned the society over blaming and complaining about various issues arising in the community and instead wants them to pray for the head of state. And uh, with that, uh, we're going to conclude uh, this uh, segment of our program. We want to remind our listeners that the Pan-African Newswire is an international electronic press service that is designed to foster intelligent discussions on the affairs of African people throughout the continent and the world. The press agency was founded in January of 1998, and since then, it has published thousands upon thousands of articles and dispatches in various newspapers, magazines, journals, research reports, and on blogs and websites throughout the world. The Pan-African Newswire represents the only daily international news source on Pan-African and global affairs. If you'd like to log on to the Pan-African Newswire so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of today, just go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. 
at panafricannews.blogspot.com. And uh, if you uh, would like to have access to today's Pan-African Journal special worldwide radio broadcast for Sunday, uh, January 30th, uh, 2022, just go to our website at the Pan-African Radio Network. That can be found at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. The programs can be shared with other potential listeners via emails, blogs, and websites, and social media networks such as Facebook and Twitter. We'll take a break. We'll be back with more of our program for this week. Oh, 
Welcome back. You're listening to uh, the Pan-African Journal, worldwide uh, radio broadcast, the special edition of our program uh, for Sunday, January 30th, uh, 2022. We're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit, and that was uh, the music of the illustrious Pointer Sisters uh, with the tune entitled Love uh, Too Good to Last. And uh, right now we want to move into a further Discussion and analysis of events uh, taking place in the West African state of Burkina Faso, and uh, you can read about that on the Pan-African Newswire website on a daily basis. Uh, In Burkina Faso, there was a military coup uh, last Monday, and of course, there is a new regime in power. Uh, The elected head of state was arrested and is being detained at a military camp uh, inside the country. The Economic Community of West African States has imposed sanctions. They sent a delegation in an attempt to mediate uh, some return to civilian rule. Uh, That delegation was sent yesterday to Ouagadougou, the capital of uh, Burkina Faso. Let's listen in to this report uh, on uh, developments in that West African state. Welcome everyone, I am Adesha Wajosh, and this is Africa Matters. We begin in Burkina Faso, where the military has ousted President Rock Kabore, triggering condemnation from the international community, despite popular support on the ground. In Nigeria, we take a look at an initiative that aims to bring more women into tech by teaching IT and graphic design skills. And as the Africa Cup of Nations hits up, Cameroonians are showcasing their football skills and culture. Burkina Faso has become the fourth former French colony in West Africa to be rocked by a coup in the past 17 months. On Sunday, soldiers led by Lieutenant Colonel Paul Henry Damiba attacked President Rock Kabore's convoy and detained him. They then dissolved the government suspended the constitution and forced President Kabore to announce his resignation. Hours later, hundreds of people took to the streets of the capital, Ouagadougou, to celebrate the military takeover. Some carried placards saying no to France, calling for an end to French security operations in the Sahel. Many are hoping the army will tackle the years-long security challenges Burkina Faso has been facing from militant groups. The future will tell us if the coup is good for the country or not. In any case, I insist on the fact that the ousted government was terrible at governing. And that made what we've just experienced in Burkina Faso seem like a deliverance. The coup comes after months of anti-government protests against President Gabor's failure to curb an armed insurgency. Thousands of people have been killed and 1.4 million displaced over the past seven years. In 2015, militant groups linked to al-Qaeda and Daesh in neighboring Mali launched attacks in the north and on the capital, Ouagadougou. President Kabore had just taken power following a popular uprising that led to the downfall of long-serving leader Blaise Kempore. Al-Qaeda and Daesh-linked militant groups have been expanding in West Africa's Sahel for more than a decade following an armed conflict in Mali between the government and secessionist Tuareg rebels. Still in 2015, 
many of the key provisions were never implemented, including the disarmament of former fighters. And so far, counterterrorism efforts by France and other Western allies have failed to prevent violent attacks. And last year, France began withdrawing some of its troops deployed in the Sahel region. Regional body ECOWAS, France, the EU, and the UN have strongly condemned the coup in Burkina Faso. UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres said the takeover could further destabilize the Sahel and pose an international security threat. He's called on the military to respect democratic values and re-establish democratic institutions. The role of military must be to defend their countries and their peoples, not to uh, attack their governments and uh, to uh, fight for power. Democratic societies are a value that must be preserved. Military coups are unacceptable in the 21st century. Let's hear more from Asita Kanko, born and raised in Burkina Faso and now a member of the European Parliament. She joins me from Brussels. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Is it a coincidence that the four military coups in West Africa in the past 17 months have taken place in former French colonies? Well, I think in politics, uh, little has to do with, co with uh, coincidence. When we look at the situation in, in the West, in the Sahel, it has been two years already that in this European Parliament we have been working on, on the topic. I have been uh, asking the, the EU to focus on tackling jihadism in the region. Uh, on controlling funds that are circulating as well, but we have seen little result, little action. So I think the issue there is bad governance, is also a repetition of the same thing over and over again. In 1987, we had a coup in Burkina Faso. So since then, what has changed for the people who have been fighting for freedom? I think that's an important question we need to ask. Little has changed politically, and people have their hopes up. You said hardly anything is a coincidence in politics. What do you mean by that? I mean, you know, we, we, are, we can see things coming. We, we could see that these jihadists are progressing in the region, in the Sahel. Uh, you could see that they are winning territories. And you could see that the, the impact of any military intervention or any action again to push them back did not really work. And you could see that the soldiers, both in Mali or in Burkina Faso, were actually starving. We saw news. And where were they killed? They were usually killed near gold mines, like Inata, for example, in Burkina Faso. So when you see all these things, of course, we have the obligation in politics to not be surprised. By, by occurrences. We have to anticipate them. And this power of anticipation has been lacking a lot. Seven years ago, young people led the popular uprising that ousted Blair Campari. Now, many of them are celebrating the ouster of the democratically elected government that replaced him. Can the military deliver on the popular demand of stopping militant attacks, and how? Uh, you know, people, when, you know, I have the you know, the privilege of having seen uh, the situation once from that side, being a Burkina-born person. And I also have the perspective of an elected member of the European Parliament from the Western perspective. Mm -hmm. If you look at this situation, it has to be more nuanced than what the West is always saying about situations in Africa. It is indeed uh, usual to see people celebrating a coup. But for, for people here, it's totally 
uh, not something they can they can fathom. Uh, when I when I see the people who are celebrating the streets today, we do not have any evidence that these were the same people who actually uh, kicked Compaore uh, out through the revolution in 2014. But what we know is why the people want him to leave. They wanted transition. They wanted a president that actually worked, served the people. They wanted to stand up for the self, the right to self-determination. What happened uh, days past, uh, since then? They did not get any of these. What they had is a written promise right. uh, of transition, of democracy. But then I think people are frustrated. Is this now the solution? Can we trust the military? I think that when there is the army that takes the power, it's always a moment of defeat. It is mm. always a moment of confusion. But let's see what is going to happen. What I hope for is that there will not be bloodshed, but I hope that we will listen to the population because the only winner here today is not the military, it's nobody. Mm. It is Russia and it is uh, the jihadists, the radical Islamists that are winning. These are the winners. But we want the population to win. Okay, so you said that Russia and the jihadists are the winners in this whole mess. Do you see mm -hmm. Russia filling the security vacuum as French influence obviously is waning in its former colonies in West Africa? Yes, I think France, uh, both France and some African officials should just realize that we are in 2022, that the colonization is supposed to be over since the 60s, and that we need each of us to take responsibility. You know, Africa leaders need to take responsibility over their own people. If they wait for France to do it, you know, France can't. And, 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 and you know, it, it's just their people. Uh, so today, French influence is, of course, waning, mm -hmm. and Russian influence is growing. Mm -hmm. While the EU was busy believing that we were still in the 60s, Russia and China were economically and politically expanding, including in Africa. Today, we have about 100,000 uh, militaries from Russia standing at the eastern border of Europe in Ukraine, and we do have Russia invading politically West Africa. So when we look at that, it's, of course, a terrible, terrible problem. When we, I see the Russian flag in Burkina Faso, I worry, of course. What I want to see is the young people of Burkina waking up in the morning and saying, look, I have hope, I have my job, and I will be safe today. This is what they need, like everyone else worldwide. Thank you so much. I see Takanko. We have more stories coming up for you here on Africa Matters, including... I am Aris Tamfu in Cameroon, and I am reporting on how the host nation is showcasing its culture through traditional dances at football's Africa Cup of Nations. I'm Adeswa Egbon. I'm in Abuja, and I will introduce you to two successful Nigerian women who are passing on opportunities they've had in the tech field to scores of other women. Technology is the biggest industry in the world, but women are being left behind in the growing sector. The UN's education and cultural body, UNESCO, says less than 4% of women undergo IT training. One Nigerian firm is trying to change that. Adesua Ewa is in Abuja to tell us how. UNICEF says Nigeria has the world's highest number of children out of school. More than 10 million children have never set foot in the classroom. And girls here don't have the same educational opportunities as boys. They account for the majority of children who aren't going to school. Down the road, that translates into fewer job opportunities. Aisha Ibrahim Buhari and Mariam Abubakar are among the few men in Nigeria who study for jobs in the tech field, and they are reaping the dividends. 
they want more women to have the same opportunities. So they started the training program, Women Design IT. It's important to note that the digital design market is worth over $45 billion globally. And the cross-border nature of tech has made it easy for designers to gain employment from all over the world from the comfort of their own homes. Giving women the skills required to participate in this huge market has helped our participants in gaining employment and freelancing, with some even creating their own startup companies and employing other women. Participants learn digital and graphic design. Mariam Abubakar is a graduate of the program. It propelled her to professional success, and she's returned to Women Design IT to help other people like her. The skills I got in graphic design in Raza Technology have enabled me gain experience whereby I was employed in multiple places and also which led to the starting of my business, Idea Tank, and enabled me gain successes far and wide. And with that, I've come back to teach fellow females so that they can also acquire the success that I have. Since 2019, close to 100 students have participated in the Women Design IT program. According to the research company Global Industry Analysts, the technology industry is expected to be worth more than $5.3 trillion by the end of this year. The African market is also growing, with about 450 tech hubs in countries like South Africa, Nigeria, Kenya, and Egypt. The demand for IT specialists is huge. Personally, I believe that a lot of problems faced by women in this part of the world is caused by economic dependence and lack of self-improvement. So this program has the potential to help women um, become economically dependent and meet their right potential. Digital designers like Aisha Ibrahim Buhari are not just educating and creating jobs for young women in Nigeria. They are also expanding Africa's technology industry and the opportunities that go along with it. Adeswa Egon, Africa Matters, Abuja. Mount Iragongo, an active volcano in the Democratic Republic of Congo, killed 32 people and destroyed many homes when it erupted in May last year. And it could erupt again at any time. But a new power plant project on the nearby Lake Kivu hopes to turn the gases the volcano emits into an opportunity. Ramesa Choda has more. It's one of Africa's Great Lakes, and it lies between the Democratic Republic of Congo and Rwanda. But Lake Kivu is what scientists describe as a killer lake. Under the seemingly tranquil lake is a massive accumulation of methane and carbon dioxide caused by thousands of years of volcanic activity from Niragongo. If triggered, it could cause an explosion resulting in a poisonous gas that could potentially kill thousands of people. The risk with this kind of lake is that we have oversaturation of gas in the water and that it may um, trigger what we call a limnic eruption. What is a limnic eruption? It's a huge explosion of gas from deep waters to the surface, which will create waves, tsunami at surface and so on. And in the 80s in Cameroon Lakes, it killed more, it killed more than 1,000 people. So we don't want that it happens here. The lake, however, shows both peril and promise. In a world first, the Kivuwat project, located on Rwanda's side of the lake, is tapping into these abandoned gases and transforming them into electricity. We try to turn this threat into opportunity. 
So removing this gas, uh, if it's done correctly, may help to reduce the risk of a limbic eruption. And of course, if when using this gas, we can also help the country to develop by, for example, producing electricity, then we, we have two chances from one uh, threat. The facility pumps water saturated with gases upwards. As it rises, the water and gas separate as the pressure changes. The project is described as halfway between a thermal and a renewable energy plant. When you compare the emissions, the carbon emission, a, we compare from kilowatt as compared to a diesel plant. Kilowatt is like three times less polluting as compared to a conventional diesel-driven power plant and is five to six times less polluting in terms of carbon emission a, to a traditional or conventional peat power plant. So I would say while we are burning this gas here, even if it is a thermal plant, it's still considered as a clean source of energy. Analysts believe, depending on the rate of extraction, it could take centuries to deplete these vast gas reserves. But the company hopes, by removing the methane, it's lowering the chances of a catastrophic explosion. From Chodar, Africa Matters. And here's a roundup of other stories making news across the continent. Tropical storm Anna has killed more than 40 people in Madagascar, Mozambique and Malawi. The storm formed off the east coast of Madagascar and made landfall on Monday. A week of torrential rains caused floods and mudslides. Several bridges have been washed away and roads were submerged, causing widespread power outages in the three countries. A Red Cross flight has delivered medical supplies to Ethiopia's war-torn Tigray region. It's the first delivery to Mekele since September. In the coming weeks, the group hopes to send more medical assistance by road to health facilities in the Amara and Afar regions, which have also been severely impacted by the conflict. Tedros Adhanom Ghebreyesus is set to secure a second term as the Director General of the World Health Organization. He is running uncontested for the position in May. The first African leader of the global health body has expressed his gratitude for the ongoing support, but he's faced criticism back home in Ethiopia after he accused the government of blocking aid to Tigray. The government blames Tigrayans for preventing desperately needed humanitarian assistance from entering the northern region. Thousands of Sudanese demonstrators have rallied outside the UN mission in Khartoum to protest against its attempt to resolve the ongoing political crisis. Demonstrators say they don't want foreign interference in domestic affairs. The UN launched talks with rival Sudanese factions earlier this month. The country has been rocked by a wave of bloody protests since a military coup in October. And Ugandan street food known as Rolex has made history. According to Guinness World Records, this giant rolled chapati filled with fried eggs and vegetables weighs a whopping 204.6 kilograms. A Rolex is Uganda's answer to a field pancake or burrito. It took 15 people to roll this giant snack. We head to Cameroon next where the week began with a deadly stampede at a football stadium in the capital. It's not clear what happened, but it seems the crush happened as fans tried to access a closed gate in order to get into the arena 
where the national side was playing Comoros in the Africa Cup of Nations. A government investigation is underway. Now, Cameroon is using the more than 500 fan zones across the country to not only screen the football matches, but also to showcase the country's rich culture. Arasine Tampo has been visiting some of the viewing centers and brings us this report. When night falls in Cameroon, it's time for football and fan zones go crazy. Cameroon is hosting the Africa Cup of Nations for the first time in 50 years. It's a dream come true. I'm very happy, I must say. Those who have not been there, you miss because I don't know when Cameroon holds the Afghan again. They brought the trophy to Cameroon. We want to retain that trophy. We don't want that trophy to go. The country is in the grip of football fever ever since 24 African nations arrived here for the four-week tournament. Cameroonians are fully supporting their national football team, the Indomitable Lions, and are hopeful the host nation will win the trophy. The authorities want the tournament to be remembered not just for the brilliant performance of the team, but also for the rich cultural diversity of the country. All over the country, more than 250 ethnic groups that make up the Central African nation are exhibiting their culture through traditional dances in fan zones just before the matches begin. Cameroonians want their culture to be seen by the world as more foreigners continue to arrive to watch the tournament. Our culture is our identity. So, you know, the Tiko municipality is the place where when you come, you meet diverse cultures. And in places that it will take advantage to sell our culture because we know the whole world is watching. Beyond the dancing and the singing, Traditional leaders are invoking the spirits of the land to ensure victory for the indomitable lions. Culture goes with sport. As a traditional ruler, in fact, my blessings to the lions must take place, must have their way. And I think traditional rulers all over Cameroon, wherever they find themselves, the ancestors and God Almighty have placed their hands upon Cameroon. Fans say they will continue drumming up support for the national team, why hoping that they will emerge champions when the tournament ends on February the 6th. Arit in Tampo, Africa Matters, Douala, Cameroon. Staying in Cameroon, since declaring independence in 1960, forests have become a major source of income for the country. According to the Okane Association, the woodlands contribute about 20% to the country's budget. The timber companies destroy 80,000 square kilometers each year, and the communities living in these tropical forests face perilous conditions. Natasha Hussein has the story. These indigenous Baka people are among the oldest ethnic groups in Cameroon. They're also one of Africa's last hunter-gatherer communities, and they've relied entirely on forests to survive for thousands of years. We're connected to forests. Forests are our homeland. We meet all our needs and food from forests. We're now banned from entering the forest. We have to leave the forests. But their home in the south of the country has become a target for commercial interests. According to the Center for International Forestry, 
Logging and mining threatens the livelihoods of about 10,000 Baka people, forcing them to abandon their nomadic lifestyle by limiting access to the forests and hunting grounds. They are not an agricultural society. They meet their needs from forests. If all forests are cut down, basically Bakas will lose their identity. Baka people say they want to live and raise their children on their ancestral lands. They also accuse authorities and logging companies of forcibly removing them from forests. They beat us when they see us in the forest. We can no longer find the trees that we need. The trees that we use in healthcare no longer exist because trees are cut down every day and they're loaded on trucks and taken away. And officially, more than three quarters of Baka people don't exist. Most of them were born in the forest and don't even have identification cards. I want an ID card because I have to show my ID when I reach a police checkpoint. For instance, if we lose our lives when we have gone far away from here, they can know where I came from and who my family is. Bakas are struggling to preserve their culture and traditional way of life. They're calling on authorities to respect the rights of indigenous inhabitants and halt deforestation before they become foreigners in their own land. Natasha Hussein, Africa Matters. This week we explore Livingstone, the southwest town of Zambia. With its rich scenery and heritage, it's the tourist capital of the country and owes its existence primarily to its proximity to Victoria Falls. Let's take a closer look. That's our show this week. Please share your thoughts and suggestions about the stories you've seen on this episode or ideas you would like us to cover on Twitter using the hashtag Africa Matters. Feel free to reach out to me on my personal handle at Josh. You can watch this episode and more on YouTube. Just search Africa Matters. Like, comment, and share with friends and family. We'll leave you with these images from across the continent. Welcome back. And that was uh, taken from Africa Matters. And uh, now we want to continue our discussion on uh, the role of the military in West Africa. Uh, we just played a report uh, which uh, in its initial minutes discussed uh, the situation in Burkina Faso. 
But this takes place uh, in the backdrop of what has happened in Mali in 2020 and 2021 uh, in recent years. And uh, we're going to now uh, move into a discussion around the role of the economic community of West African states, ECOWAS, and their response uh, to uh, these military interventions uh, in Mali, in Guinea, and now in uh, Burkina Faso. Uh, Let's listen in. China Global Television Network. The Economic Community of West African States imposed tough sanctions on Mali earlier this month in response to delays in restoring civilian rule after a 2020 military coup. Mali was supposed to hold elections in February of 2022, but the military-led government has pushed that back by up to five years. Amikano Latimi Goita blames continuing insecurity in the northern region. The sanctions include closure of members' land and air borders with Mali, the suspension of non-essential financial transactions, and the freezing of Malian state assets in ECOWAS's central and commercial banks. The move has been backed by the United States, the European Union, and former colonial power France. The death of former President Ibrahim Boubacar Keita Overthrown by the military in 2020, also comes as thousands of Malians took to the streets to protest against international sanctions that have isolated the nation. So this week on the program, we look into the current situation in Mali, and we ask whether the West African leaders will manage to put the country back on the path to civilian rule. I'm Beatrice Marshall. Welcome to Talk Africa. Well, in a special summit earlier this month in the Ghanaian capital, Accra, the leaders of the West African bloc hit Mali's military government with sanctions that have cut off the country from regional trade and finance in response to delays in holding the promised elections. CGTN's Nabil Ahmed Rufai brings us up to speed with these developments. The West African regional bloc, ECOWAS, had already suspended Mali from the organization after the military took over the government more than a year ago. But after junta leaders rolled back on promises to hold elections to return the country to a civilian government next month, leaders of ECOWAS nations met in Ghana's capital Accra to discuss the political situation. The group said the junta's proposal to move back to civilian rule within five years was unacceptable and the decision to continue to impose sanctions including the freezing of financial assets and travel bans on the country was made. These additional sanctions include first, the withdrawal of ambassadors of all ECOWAS member states in Mali. Second, closure of land and air border between ECOWAS member countries and Mali. Third, Suspension of all commercial and financial transactions between ECOWAS member states and Mali. ECOWAS has also frozen Mali's assets in the regional bloc's central and commercial banks 
and suspended all financial support given to the country. In response, Mali has recalled all of its ambassadors in nations across West Africa and says it is shutting its borders with those countries. It is unclear the extent ECOWAS sanctions will affect Mali's economy, but some analysts believe it could deepen poverty and insecurity in the country. We don't expect a credible progressive election to be held in such a state of insecurity. In fact, things are so bad to the extent that the Malian authorities even had to seek the services of Wagner uh, with, with some alleging, some French sources alleging that there are well over 400 of them active in the country with about 200 based in the town of Segu, not far from uh, Bamako. Analysts want the West African leaders to negotiate with the transitional authority in Mali to decide on a new timeline to return the country to a civilian government. I think February is too early. <laughs> it, it's not practical. So if there's a way, and I also think on the other hand that four or five years is a bit too much. So if they can, on a gentleman basis, uh, meet each other halfway, maybe a year or a two, I think that that could help. However, the most important bit to all of this is for the human security is to be addressed and this cannot be done by the Malians alone or the military uh, junta alone. They need the help of, of ECOWAS. Mali's military junta says the transitional authority is open to dialogue with leaders of the regional bloc but ECOWAS says it will only lift the sanctions after an acceptable and agreed timeline to return Mali to a civilian government is reached. Nabil Ahmed Rufai, CGTN. Accra, Ghana. Well, let's broaden our discussion a bit further now. And joining us via Zoom in Accra, Omolara Balogun, Head of Policy Influencing and Advocacy Unit at the West African Civil Society Institute. In London, Paul Melly, Consulting Fellow, Africa Program at the Chatham House. And joining us from New York, Olajumoki Ayandele, Postdoctoral Research Fellow at NYU Center for the Study of Africa and African Diaspora. A warm welcome to you all and thank you for joining in this discussion. Uh, Omolara, if I may start off with you, because Malians took to the streets en masse last uh, Friday after the military junta called for a protest against stringent uh, measures imposed by ECOWAS uh, over delayed elections. First off, what is your take on this? It is pretty difficult to impose um, I would say democracy by the use of force. Democracy itself costs for freedom and wills of the people. So what we experienced last week for a second relates to space of what the needs of the Malian people, what are they saying and how are they saying it. It is very clear at this moment that uh, the military junta, albeit outdated style of leadership, it's not something that we want to welcome or accommodate in the region at this critical time where we are continuing to see a decline to our democracy. However, currently does have the support of the Malian people. So at this point, if there is nothing we are doing, is to keep the room open for dialogue and continuous discussion. So I'm I, I reading the, the sanctions coming from ECOWAS, right. I, I begin to tell myself that, no, we, we, we need to think and differently and act differently at this point. Uh, Jumo, 
the military did say that uh, it will take up to oh, five years. It wants a five-year transition uh, a period. I mean, what's your reaction to the postponement of it all? Do you agree with Olomara? So we have to look at it from ECOWAS's perspective, right? ECOWAS's um, credibility is on the line as it seeks to uphold fundamental principles of governance and contain regional instability, thus, you know, the recently imposed sanctions that we have seen uh, on Mali's military junta. But Bamako, on the other hand, has responded in equal measures um, to ECOWAS um, sanctions by also closing their borders to member states and have, as Amalara has pointed out, found it profitable um, to be defiant to these measures, giving citizens support and the various demonstrations that we've seen across Mali against ECOWAS's sanctions. Right. Uh, Paul Mali, what's your thought, though? What does this signal? Well, I think it's a very dangerous situation because you can see why ECOWAS, uh, as Juma just pointed out, had to, had to be seen to act. A lot of people... Uh, we're expecting ECOWAS to stand up for the principles of basic constitutional governance as set out in, for 20 years, West Africa has uh, committed itself to the ECOWAS protocol that you soldiers can't seize power and just sit in power uh, by force. And when the Malian junta late last year, instead of offering, pushing for a slightly longer transition, as most people expected, perhaps a few more months or a year, when they suddenly said, well, we want to stay in power for another five years, and most political parties in Mali opposed that, a lot of civil society groups opposed that, uh, ECOWAS would have looked very weak if it hadn't taken a strong line. But, as you point out, uh, there is a huge risk because... Uh, people on the streets. It's very easy in Bamako for the government to mobilize a big crowd, a lot of popular support, and then present itself as defending the Malian people against uh, the horrible outsiders. And especially because those outsiders are incumbent heads of state presidents, so it's easy to paint them as people of the elite, right. older generation, all that kind of thing. So it's a very, very fragile situation. But Olamara, that is the point we want to look at at the moment because even though Paul says that, um, you know, the civil society and a section of the people opposed, uh, you know, the situation, there was a lot of support from the Malian people. What do you make of that huge turnout? Why was there support from the Malian people? Well, one of the points that the junta themselves raised in addition to the suffering of the Malian people under on, on the, uh, the last democratic regime was the fact that the military themselves were also suffering similar, uh, you know, experiencing similar situation whereby the resources and the support they required from the government to fight for terrorists and protect the state were seriously lagging at the time. And this has been the point that, that, that the elements within the junta and the leadership itself had called to be a major one for them to step in to rescue the Malian people from the list uh, or maladministration of the, of the democratic regime. Right. Like I said earlier, this is not a popular position, and it's not something that we want to welcome, considering the fact that at this time we should be consolidating our democracy in West Africa. It's been a long fight to get here, and uh, uh, experiencing uh, right. a junta uh, regime like this is a serious setback 
And honestly, I, I, I do understand where ECOWAS, ECOWAS is coming from. Uh, ECOWAS needs to stand up for its commitment, and that's what we are doing. I wasn't expecting anything differently. Let me bring in Juma at this point, Olamara. Let me bring in Juma at this point. Juma, I want to get your thought on that uh, popular position that um, Omolara is, is bringing in, because we are seeing the Malian people coming out in support of the military regime and there are those who are saying that despite the current situation the interim government has actually brought stability to Mali. Do you agree? Um, yes, to some extent um, and that's because the military junta themselves have argued that a peaceful vote is more important um, than speed and this delay that we see in the post-coup transition map is influenced, and we need to think about this, by the current security crisis in Mali that has been exacerbated by the pandemic. So the lack of social safety nets that were not provided by um, previous civilian administrations and the, uh, and the previous interim government in cushioning the direct and indirect effects of the pandemic have helped to trigger this support that we, we have seen, this popular support that we have seen to, to, for the military winter. And that's because many citizens are willing to support this extended transition period because in their own view, this is the only way that Mali will finally see stability with or without the help of regional blocs such as ECOWAS. Paul, your thoughts here. Talk to us about that popular support that we're seeing from the Malian people, despite the fact that the international community and uh, regional countries um, you know, think otherwise. Well, I, th I think one of, the, one of the things about Mali is that it had a very inspiring democratic revolution back at the beginning of the 90s. There was a dictatorial government. Uh, the security forces actually shot school children dead when they were protesting, demanding political change. And then a group of reformist soldiers deposed the president, embarked on a democratic transition, and for um, two and almost three decades, to some extent, the Malian political elite that emerged out of that period sort of believed its own publicity, if you like. They did successfully construct a democracy. Uh, they did have uh, election after election after election. But little by little, a sort of complacency crept in. People got very comfortable. Most, uh, Many of the senior politicians of today are, people, are the same people who were around in the early 90s. Um, and there's been uh, uh, corruption spread to some extent, uh, right. especially among the political class in the capital. Things got rather comfortable. They got out of touch with the people. And they also, uh, to some extent, neglected um, the soldiers on the front line. And although they're fighting the jihadists up in the north, and although, although some efforts had started to be made towards changing that, there's quite a lot of disillusion among ordinary Malians, particularly in Bamako. It's not that they're and they want dictatorship, but they have lost a bit of faith in what the reality of the democratic leadership are providing, and so that's left this sort of space where now Colonel Goita can uh, present this rather sort of nationalistic military. Uh, agenda. All right, uh, we'll leave it there for the moment and continue with this discussion. But uh, let's now take a short break. When we come back, we'll have more on Mali Echoes standoff. Stay tuned. <laughs> Africa, 
As we have said, the Malian people do not deserve these sanctions. In no case should the people of Mali be sanctioned in this manner. These people have done nothing wrong and I think those responsible for the chaos in Mali are well known. At the beginning, ECOWAS had taken targeted sanctions against the political authorities who do not want to take concrete actions that could bring us to the end of the transition. ECOWAS is determined to stay the course and not lose face. The sub-regional organization wants to be credible but is no longer credible. ECOWAS is no longer credible because we have seen that in some countries, presidents have made constitutional revisions to extend their mandate at the head of their country and it has done nothing. This way of doing things is likely to prove that this institution is no longer credible. It is not an organization at the service of the people but at the service of certain heads of state. Well, some of the reactions there from the protesters in Bamako, Mali last Friday following sanctions imposed by regional bloc ECOWAS over delayed elections. Welcome back to Talk Africa. Now, let's continue with the discussion. Joining me in Accra, Omolara Balagun. Uh, in London, uh, Paul Melly, and joining us from New York, Olajumoki Ayendele. Well, I want to continue with our discussion on the uh, sanctions imposed on Mali by ECOWAS. And Jumo, um, let's start off with you because the cause for the uh, protest was, you know, in reaction to the imposition of sanctions by the West African regional bloc uh, ECOWAS. Do you think the ECOWAS sanctions are justified? Yes, they are definitely justified. I do not think ECOWAS as a regional bloc is overreaching. Um, the regional bloc's response is in line with the 2001 Protocol on Good Governance and Democracy. And without imposing these measures and sanctions, ECOWAS could be signaling to other ambitious soldiers in neighboring West African countries that there are limited repercussions to toppling sitting presidents in the region. So, no, it, it is not an overreach. I think this is the right move for the regional uh, um, bloc and response. Olomarara, is it an overreach? Well, I, I think, uh, like Jumoke said, uh, ECOWAS is doing what they have within their own uh, protocols. And, and I, would, I wouldn't expect anything differently. However, I think that uh, within uh, other protocols of, of, of ECOWAS, especially its vision, which has transformed from that of the heads of state to the people, I think the people of the Mali should take, you know, a priority here. When we look at the new set of sanctions that, that were uh, 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 that came out a, a couple of days ago, we realized that it has serious injurious effects on the people of Mali generally and not, uh, uh, it, it's quite different from the initial sanctions that were targeted at the junta leaders and their allies uh, as, the, as the case was as a then. Right now, these sanctions would, uh, if care is not taken, will worsen the humanitarian crisis that we have been witnessing in Mali for some years now. Currently, I mean, before the situation got this worse, we have over 200,000 Malian people who have been displaced, displaced from their homes as a result of the activities of the extremists in the north and, 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 and other political crises. Right. We also have issues of, uh, you know, uh, drought which continues to lead to, you know, food insecurity in the country and having sanctions that further restrict, you know, humanitarian 
actors to access to people, you know, financial support for the country. The ordinary man on the streets of Mali is going to feel this, uh, um, the effects of this sanction more than the junta who will still have access to basic resources that oh. the Malian people could. Juma, so and that, that, that is the question, though, Juma, here. That is the question, uh, the adverse impact that the sanctions are likely to have on the, uh, you know, common Malian people. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes. And, and that, that is something to take into, into consideration that, you know, when we have economic sanctions, they don't necessarily target individuals, but they, but they target the citizens. But it's not just economic sanctions. There are also measures on individuals of the military you know, junta. And that's also something that we, we need to consider when we're thinking about Mali. Um, right now, um, the, the, the regional bloc has to send a very strong message. And I, I do believe that these measures that they have imposed is a step in the right direction. Now we we now need regional leadership from, like for example, the, the African Union to, to really support ECOWAS and to really signal um, to, to the continent that military coups are, are a thing of the past. And especially in the post-COVID world, this is not what we want to see the African continent um, transitioning into. We want to uphold participatory right. democratic processes um, when, when we're thinking about how to move the continent forward and how to secure its prosperity and its security. Uh, Paul, do you think this is uh, rather drastic given the, you know, the end goal that uh, ECOWAS wants to achieve though? Well, I think we, we need to remember that uh, just, just a couple of months ago, um, people were talking that the Mali Junta basically said, well, we can't hold elections in February. Uh, that's not realistic. The expectation in ECOWAS and more generally in the international community was that the junta would try and negotiate perhaps for a few more months, just a short delay. Uh, the rainy season will come along in, uh, in late June, early July, so um, you know, perhaps elections in April or May might have been realistic. That would have provided plenty of time. Uh, Mali actually has held elections in the past, even with the security crisis that have where the, it has proved possible for most people to go and vote. Right. So the military's case that the whole thing could be put back by five years uh, doesn't really stack up. And from ECOWAS' point of view, we, we need to remember a lot is at stake here. In September, uh, the military overthrew, overthrew the president in Guinea. Now, he was corrupt. He had manipulated the constitution to get himself another term. He had become quite oppressive. The military intervention was very popular, right. but uh, it came straight after Mali. And then just a few days ago, uh, the reports are that in Burkina Faso, which is a very democratic country, whose government is relatively well run and whose president is certainly democratically legitimate, uh, there were disconsented soldiers who were plotting to try and overthrow his government. So that's the perspective that's driving ECOWAS. It's true that for ordinary people in Bamako, it's tough. I was talking to a friend in Bamako this morning, and he said the price of rice is going up, uh, the price of sugar is going up, the price of oil is going up. It's really difficult. But the alternative was um, just to stick with some very narrow, targeted personal sanctions. And since the soldiers that aren't, haven't been in power that long and don't have... They don't have assets piled up abroad. The sanctions are, those personal sanctions are of another limited impact. Looking at the um, 
the, the instability in northern Mali that has been a zone uh, for Mali for years. Now, what impact will this though have on the military's ability to regain stability for Mali as well as fight the jihadists? I was reading an article a couple of days ago, and the article said that uh, currently about 50% of Marian, uh, Malian uh, uh, geographical, uh, uh, you know, uh, location is currently under the control of, of, of terrorists. And uh, when we had um, uh, uh, constitutional uh, uh, regimes in place, democratic regimes in place, it was around 20 to 25%. At the moment, the terrorists. The violent extremists are taking the opportunity, the opportunity right. not only to, to, to smuggle, uh, 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 you know, massive arms into the region to perpetrate, to, you know, to strengthen the, 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 the nefarious activities they are doing there, but of course to further destabilize the Malian army. So the protection of, of, of the security of the country is currently in jeopardy, and of course, the security of the region in the aftermath of this empathy is not something that's going to be easy for all of us to deal with. So we really need to come to the roundtable right about now and find a better way to resolve this crisis. Otherwise, we may have a bigger problem in our hands. Right, so I want to hear your solutions to this crisis because um, it is still unfolding. It has been playing out over the last week or so. Uh, Paul, uh, what do you think is going to happen next? How do you see all this playing out? And is there room for um, crisis talks? Is there room for dialogue? Well, there's certainly room for dialogue. I think the question is, can somebody, and it might need to be uh, somebody, an organization or an individual that is, as it were, from outside of both Mali and ECOWAS, who can get in there and persuade the Malian junta to make a realistic compromise offer that ECOWAS could accept. So possibly uh, the head of the African Union Commission, uh, uh, Musafaki, who is from Chad, so he knows the region well, but he is not West African, so he has possibly a bit of outside uh, influence. Equally, we've seen rumors that Algeria is preparing to propose a compromise suggestion of a transition a transition of about a year or 18 months and one feels that that's the sort of timeline that that might might be a reasonable compromise but at the moment it's very difficult ECOWAS can't back down for the reasons we've discussed but we can see that Colonel Goita the head of the junta is not going to suddenly climb back either so uh, Jumar, your thoughts, what do you think is going to happen next? Um, dialogue is definitely very necessary um, with this millennium crisis um, that we are currently facing. But at the same time, we need to understand that this decision to delay elections in Mali really raises several questions regarding the reputation of African regional bodies and the commitment of African member states to actually comply with their various um, protocols. So moving forward with trying to mitigate um, the Malian crisis, I do agree with Paul that strong leadership from the African Union is an essential uh, component, especially in demilitarizing political spaces, not just in Mali, but in the continent 
continent as a whole. Um, the case of Mali illustrates that the continent is still struggling um, with the political ambition of certain military leaders. And yet, if the African Union and other regional blocs such as ECOWAS are supposed to be champions of um, good governance, they have to really address the root causes of political instability and coups, including um, the illegitimate measures that have been used to extend the terms of incubants and you know, their abuse of power. Omalara, you have the final word. How do you see all this playing out? I completely agree with the point made by Paul and Jumoke. I think uh, addressing the root causes of all the crisis is one way, with one place we need to start from. And I think uh, EFWAS uh, itself needs to take a quick and a, a deeper look at the, the, the protocols on good governance, democracy and good governance, to ensure it addresses you know, different manipulation, constitutional manipulations that we continue to see in the region, which often usher in this kind of crisis, you know, senior elongation, constitutional changes, illegal constitutional changes. These are some of the, uh, you know, uh, 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 fundamental issues that has led to this kind of crisis. And now for Mali, I think um, I want to agree that, uh, uh, I want to believe, I mean to say, that uh, this very tough sanctions from ECOWAS is only to call for renegotiations of terms uh, because I, I know ECOWAS to be quite democratic in its vision and its mission and of course uh, it's an organization that has prioritized the needs of the people even as it's put it in its own uh, uh, ambitions. I think the earlier we took that opportunity to continue conversation, the better for all of us. All right, that's all we have time for on this edition of Talk Africa. A big thank you to our panel of experts in Accra, Omolara Balagun, Head of Policy Influencing and Advocacy Unit at the West Africa Civil Society Institute in London, Paul Melly, Consulting Fellow at the Africa Program Chatham House, and in New York, Ola Jumoke Ayandele, Postdoctoral Research Fellow at the NYU Center for the Study of Africa and African Diaspora. And remember, you can be a part of this conversation through our social media platforms on Facebook and Twitter. And you can watch this and other editions of Talk Africa on our YouTube playlist. To join us again next week for more Talk Africa. For me, Beatrice Marshall and the team here in Nairobi. Until next time, goodbye. Welcome back. And that was uh, more analysis on the uh, situation in Mali, as well as uh, the situation in Burkina Faso. It was brought up as well as Kenny uh, with the rash of uh, military interventions in uh, African governance structures uh, since uh, 2020. And, of course, uh, this is covered extensively uh, over the Pan-African Newswire. If you want to log on to the Pan-African Newswire, all you need to do is go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. You're listening to the Pan-African Journal, special worldwide radio broadcast for Sunday, January 30, 2022. 2022. Yes. And uh, we're here uh, every week. Uh, we're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. We're going to take a break, and we'll be back uh, with more of the Pan-African Journal for this week.
the voice of the legendary Phyllis Hyman uh, with the tune entitled B1. And uh, you're listening to the Pan-African Journal, special worldwide radio broadcast. And we are here broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit uh, on this Sunday, January 30th, uh, 2022. Uh, Right now we want to move into our final news segment of the program uh, where we examine some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day uh, worldwide as well as particularly to the African continent. Let's listen in to Africa Live. This is CGTN, China Global Television Network. Hello and welcome to China Global Television Network. This is The World Today. I'm Beatrice Marshall in Nairobi. Here are your top stories. South Korean President asks Pyongyang to stop raising tensions after the DPRK test fires another missile. Israeli President Isaac Hazok makes the first visit to the UAE by an Israeli head of state. And thousands of protests against vaccine mandates, masks and lockdowns in the Canadian capital. The South Korean military says the DPRK has fired an intermediate-range ballistic missile into the waters of its east coast. The Japanese Coast Guard has also confirmed it. South Korean President Moon Jae-in has called on Pyongyang to stop raising tensions at an emergency meeting of the National Security Council. He also says the DPRK has gone close to scrapping the ICBM test moratorium and is urging Pyongyang to answer the international call for dialogue. This would be the seventh test of the month after Pyongyang confirmed it tested a hypersonic missile nearly three weeks ago. The last time the DPRK tested this many weapons in a month was in 2019. It came after high-profile negotiations between leader Kim Jong-un and then U.S. President Donald Trump collapsed. The country has been ramping up its missile program in recent months. Britain says it is considering making a major NATO deployment as part of a plan to strengthen Europe's borders. Prime Minister Boris Johnson's office says the plan involves members of the NATO defense pact in the Nordics and the Baltics, meaning the country could double troop numbers and send defensive weapons to Estonia. Johnson is also expected to speak to Russian President Vladimir Putin by phone in the coming days. German news website Der Spiegel is reporting that the U.S. has discredited Germany as an unreliable partner due to its reticence in the Ukrainian crisis. The outlet is citing a confidential memo by the German ambassador to the United States the memo says Washington believes that Germany's position is born out of a desire to continue buying cheap natural gas from Russia. Well, as the U.S. warns that Russia now has the military capability for a full-scale invasion of Ukraine, President Joe Biden says he will be sending a small number of U.S. troops to Eastern Europe. Kate Fisher has more from Washington. With diplomatic efforts to solve the international crisis between Ukraine and Russia looking as bleak as the Washington weather, 
U.S. President Joe Biden says he'll soon be deploying troops to bolster the NATO presence in the region. I'll be moving U.S. troops to Eastern Europe and the NATO countries in the near term. Not a lot. Such a deployment would be significant politically as well as militarily. Russia's top diplomat, Sergei Lavrov, maintains it does not want to start a war with Ukraine. But a new assessment from the Pentagon warns that Russia is now positioned to go beyond a limited incursion. Russia has been deploying forces to Crimea and along Ukraine's border, including in Belarus. It has progressed at a consistent and steady pace involving tens of thousands of Russian troops. And it is being supported by increased Russian naval activity in the northern Atlantic and the Mediterranean Sea. While we don't believe that President Putin has made a final decision to use these forces against Ukraine, he clearly now has that capability. And there are multiple options available to him. All of which could have dire consequences, according to U.S. military officials. This is larger in scale and scope uh, in the massing of forces than anything we have seen um, uh, in recent memory. And I think you'd have to go back quite a while into the Cold War days to see something of this magnitude. And if war were to break out on a scale and scope that is possible, the civilian population will suffer immensely. President Volodymyr Zelensky has criticized the Biden administration for these ominous warnings, saying they're causing needless alarm in his country. I think, and I talked about this with the president, that the politics should be balanced. I'm not saying that he has influence on the media. They're free, but the politics have to be balanced. And journalists, if they want to understand the situation, let them come to Kiev. Are tanks driving here on the streets? No. Some scholars say Zelensky is in a difficult position. Part of him wants to please the United States and escalate, but then when the United States got carried away with it, he himself gets scared, you know, his public gets scared, so he's absolutely correctly said, calm down. But, you know, the United States, unfortunately, is going to milk Ukraine. They were milking Ukraine since 2014. This is the history. Now they use Ukraine for their Trump gate, impeachment tribe. Now they, you know, use Ukraine for building up NATO, and they will continue to do that. And so the rest of the world should listen to Ukraine, probably, and put pressure on the United States to calm down. Diplomacy has so far failed to resolve the standoff on Russia's border with Ukraine. But on Monday, attempts will move to the United Nations, where the U.S. will square off against Russia in the Security Council. Kate Fisher, CGTN, Washington. Israeli President Isaac Herzog has arrived in the United Arab Emirates. It is the first visit to the Gulf country by an Israeli head of state. Herzog is scheduled to meet with the influential Abu Dhabi Crown Prince Sheikh Mohammed bin Zayed Al Nayyan and other senior officials, as well as representatives of the local Jewish community. The two nations normalized diplomatic ties in 2020 under a U.S. brokered peace accord. A letter released this week shows Israel offered security and intelligence support against further drone attacks. Israel and the UAE are seeking to strengthen Gulf ties at a time of heightened regional tension and as world powers work to revive the 2015 nuclear deal with Iran. Thousands of protesters have gathered in the Canadian capital to protest against vaccine mandates, masks and lockdowns. 
The sounds of honking horns were heard around Ottawa's downtown core on Saturday. Some people parked their cars on the grounds of the National War Memorial and danced on the tomb of the unknown soldier. Many carried signs cursing Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. Police are prepared for the possibility of violence and warned residents to avoid downtown. A top parliament security official advised lawmakers to take precautions as their homes may be targeted. Prime Minister Trudeau called the protesters a very troubling, small, but very vocal minority. Now, much of the U.S. East Coast is dealing with a massive winter storm. Uh, blizzard warnings are in effect for uh, some 10 million people. Winds over 56 kilometers an hour are reported. On New York's Long Island, nearly 57 centimeters of snow is being reported. William Denslow reports from New York City. By the time many New Yorkers woke up on Saturday morning, more than five inches of snow had fallen in New York City's Central Park. Eric Adams uh, has spoken repeatedly on Saturday, urging New Yorkers to stay at home as much as possible. He says that if people need to be out and about for whatever reason, to urging them to take public transport as opposed to getting into their cars and risking uh, treacherous conditions uh, on the streets. Also, outdoor dining has been suspended in New York. Public school buildings are closed as well. In total, officials say that New York City could see a total of 12 inches of snowfall over this weekend. But New York City isn't expected to see the worst of the snowfall. Parts of Long Island are expected to see up to 24 inches uh, of snow. It's also uh, expected to see that figure around the Boston area as well. Of course, five states in total have declared states uh, of emergency. And it's not just the snow that is the concern for officials. Wind gusts of around 50 miles an hour are a huge concern. There's also uh, fears of coastal flooding in some communities as well. In total, as well as these five states that have declared states of emergency, 10 states in total could see blizzard-like conditions. And in total, according to some estimates, 75 million people could be impacted in some way uh, by these blizzards. We've already seen in the state of Massachusetts more than 100,000 homes have lost power. Thousands of flights already cancelled uh, this weekend in the United States. The message really from officials in this region of the U.S. is that if you are imp impacted by this uh, snowman, snow and by these blizzards, stay home as much as possible, hunker down and wait for it to pass. William Denslow, CGTN, New York. A cable repair ship is expected to reach Tonga today. This comes two weeks after a volcanic eruption and tsunami damaged much of the communication lines on the island country. Earlier, we spoke to our correspondent Greg Navarro about this. He's in Fiji's capital city of Suva. This is really fascinating. This ship, uh, just taking a look at what it does, it can carry more than 5,000 metric tons of cable. That may sound like a lot, but when you consider what we're dealing with, it's really not the case. We're talking about a cable that, as you mentioned, it stretches from Tonga to here in Fiji, about 750 to 800 kilometers long. It is extremely long. More importantly, it is the only cable linking Tonga to the rest of the world as far as communications go. And you may remember the day of the uh, volcano and tsunami. Communications were basically cut off. They had a blackout for at least five days. Even today, more than two weeks after that disaster, communications are still an issue, especially Internet access. Now, that ship left... Port Moresby in Papua New Guinea uh, 10 days ago. It is scheduled to arrive in Tonga today. 
Engineers on board believe there are probably two breaks in that cable, but there are a lot of unknowns, including the concern about uh, any kind of underwater activity that might have uh, caused some debris to collapse on top of that cable. Now, the way they're going to actually figure out exactly where those breaks are on the repair, it's really fascinating. They're going to use a fiber optic cable, and they're going to emit a signal, basically, through that. And when the signal bounces back to them, they'll measure the amount of time that they took. They'll use that to determine exactly where those breaks are. They'll then remove a section of the cable where the breaks are and replace it with a new one and eventually splice it. The amazing part about this, all of this takes place well under the uh, surface of the ocean. They'll use some robotic equipment as well. If all goes well, they do expect to have communications back restored, that cable back restored, in about two weeks. The 40-day peak travel period has begun in China as the biggest holiday. The spring festival is just two days away. Officials estimate more than 30 million passenger trips were made nationwide on Saturday, most on highways. Coronavirus control remains a top priority, but authorities say local governments must refrain from recklessly imposing additional control measures targeting people returning from other regions. The Spring Festival sees millions of Chinese return home to reunite with their families. This year, it falls on Tuesday, February the 1st. And that's it on this edition of The World Today. I'll be back shortly with more news from the continent in Africa Live. Thank you for watching. China Global Television Network.
ECOWAS Chiefs of Defense Staff Delegation meets with members of Burkina Faso's military junta. Military court in the DRC hands the death sentences to killers of UN-appointed investigators. And we look at how Africans are gearing up to join celebrations to mark the Chinese New Year. Welcome to Africa Live on CGTN with me, Beatrice Marshall in Nairobi. Also ahead on the program, business optimism rises after Rwanda and Uganda decide to reopen the border crossing. And hosts Cameroon and Burkina Faso march into semi-finals at the ongoing Africa Cup of Nations. And we begin with the latest from Burkina Faso. The ECOWAS Committee of Chiefs of Defence Staff has met with members of the country's ruling military junta. The delegation is taking part in a 48-hour visit following the coup in the country. They also had a brief meeting with Lieutenant Colonel Paul Damiba, who is leading the military junta. The junta welcomed the ECOWAS visit. It also reaffirmed its commitment to sub-regional and international organizations. A delegation from ECOWAS met the leader of the junta in Burkina Faso yesterday. This meeting comes after the West African bloc suspended the country over the region's latest coup. In a statement received, the junta reaffirmed its commitment to working with the sub-regional and international organizations. A ministerial-level ECOWAS is expected to arrive in Ouagadougou tomorrow to meet again with the new military regime. The second delegation will then report its findings to West African leaders who will hold a meeting on the 3rd of February to assess the outcome of Burkina Faso's missions and to decide whether to impose sanctions as was the case in Mali and Guinea. Desiree Kano, CGTN, Ouagadougou, Burkina Faso. Well, Burkina Faso is now under the control of the country's military, but for many residents, their daily struggles have not changed. Many daily wage earners rely on mining to provide for their families, uh, so much so that a coup or gunfire could not stop them from continuing with their work. On Sunday, January 23rd, gunfire was ringing out from several military camps in Burkina Faso. The next day, the world would learn that a coup had taken place. But for miners near the Hisi neighborhood in Burkina Faso, not even the shots from the nearby Lamizana military camp stopped work. That's because missing a day of work for these artisanal miners means they might not be able to provide for their families. I am here. I break rocks. It is very difficult to break. If I work from morning to night, I can earn, for example, a thousand francs. With this money, I have to feed the children, pay for their school. It's really difficult. The work is hard and it's really pitiful. I've been here for 10 years and so far I can't get by. It's really pitiful. The granite mined here is used to make buildings, paving stones or roads. For the hard labor, workers here are paid between a dollar to two dollars a day. Sometimes you see big injuries, sometimes the rocks hurt people, sometimes it hits the eyes, sometimes the hammer comes out and hits people. There are a lot of accidents and the slope is also slippery. 
people get hurt a lot here. Many Burkina Bays may be focused on the capital Ouagadougou, waiting to see what steps the military junta and ECOWAS will take next. But for workers here, there's only one option, to keep digging for granite, as they have for the past 40 years. Astatal, CGTN. Meanwhile, West African leaders working together under the regional bloc ECOWAS are under pressure to stop the wave of military takeovers recently seen in the region. There have been three coups over the last 19 months that toppled the governments of Mali, Guinea and lately Burkina Faso. CGTN Dejibadimosi reports. It all started in Mali on the 18th of August 2020 when a group of soldiers toppled the elected government. Barely a year later, there was another military takeover, this time in Guinea. Again, a group of soldiers sacked the government of Alpha Conde and took control of the affairs of the country. And in the latest incident, the Burkina Faso military seized power on the 24th of January. The soldiers were led by 41-year-old Lieutenant Colonel Paul Henry Damiba. Analysts now fear a worrying trend is taking shape in the West African sub-region. With uh, this bit of, um, uh, I would say, frustration, the uh, unemployment that has been generated over the years and the inability of uh, the political class uh, to stem uh, conflicts in those countries where conflicts have been the order of the day. Uh, these have provided uh, ready weapons uh, for the military to use as a basis uh, for providing excuse for intervention in the political lives of their countries. And so it, it spells it is dire for the African continent, especially West Africa. Regional body ECOWAS has come under the spotlight over what action it is taking against the coup plotters to restore democracy in the affected countries. Its response so far has been to impose wide-ranging sanctions on the countries while demanding a swift return to democracy. But so far, it does not appear the strategy is working. What the present situation in West Africa especially uh, indicates is the failure of the kind of diplomacy that ECOWAS has brought uh, you know, to play, uh, the issue of sanctions. If sanctions were working and were effective, then you will not have I mean, the same thing being replicated in other West African countries like we have just seen in Burkina Faso. Unless they want to uh, keep on doing the same thing, uh, and hoping for a different result, which is not going to happen. ECOWAS has to be ingenious. ECOWAS has to look for other ways. ECOWAS has found itself in a very difficult situation where, in most instances, it's the people themselves who are welcoming the coup d'etat. Like what we've seen in Burkina Faso, the people came out on the street and were jubilating, showing that they were not happy with the, um, well, now unseated government. Sentiments against ECOWAS are already building up in the countries where coups have taken place. There have been protests against the sanctions, with citizens demanding their removal. There are hard positions that will just have to be taken, otherwise we are going to have a total reversal of the gains, the democratic gains that have been made in the West African sub-region in the past two decades. So something much harder has to be done. With a number of countries in the region like Nigeria battling their own security challenges, ECOWAS does not seem to have the appetite for the use of force to restore democracy in the coup-affected countries. And it appears the coup plotters know this. They're using it to their own advantage for now. DG Badimasi, CGTN, Lagos, Nigeria. 
A military court in the Democratic Republic of Congo has sentenced dozens of members of a militia group to death for their involvement in the murder of two UN experts. The guilty verdicts were handed down by a court in the central province of Kasai on Saturday. CGTN's Chris Ochamringa sent us this report. Fifty-one defendants were presented in court over the killing of two UN investigators in a remote village in the Kasai region in 2017. Most of the militia members were sentenced to death for being involved in the killing of Zaida Catalan, a Swedish Chilean, and Michael Sharp, an American. Their bodies were found in a village 16 days after they went missing. The UN experts were investigating the violence that broke out in 2016 between government forces and a militia group after a traditional leader was killed. The military court also sentenced a Congolese colonel to 10 years in prison for violating orders and failing to assist a person in danger. The UN was shocked by the murders in 2017 and urged the Congolese government to do everything possible to ensure that justice is done. Hundreds of people died in the conflict in Kasai and over a million were displaced by the fighting that ended in 2017. Chris Sochamringa, CGTN, Kinshasa, Democratic Republic of Congo. Chinese President Xi Jinping has extended a spring festival greetings to Chinese people of all ethnic groups, compatriots in Hong Kong, Macau and Taiwan and overseas Chinese. Speaking on behalf of the Communist Party of China's Central Committee and the State Council, President Xi recalled China's achievements over the past year, including celebrations to mark the 100th anniversary of the CPC. He said China had ushered in a new journey of building a modern socialist country after it won a poverty alleviation battle and finished the building of a moderately prosperous society in all respects. President Xi said China has made more progress in high-quality development. Looking to the year ahead, she said the CPC will hold its 20th National Congress to establish a roadmap for the next five years. President Xi said China is ready to host a streamlined, safe and splendid Winter Olympics over the coming days. While well, the Chinese Spring Festival, also known as the Chinese Lunar New Year, is a crucial part of the country's rich culture and traditions. Each year, it is represented by an animal and according to the established system of using the Chinese zodiac signs, the year 2022 has been called the Year of the Tiger. But what does this mean? CGTN's Kalechi Emekalam spoke with an expert from the Confucius Institute in Lagos to find out more. Professor Shimdi Madwagu has spent the past four years heading the Confucius Institute at the University of Lagos, Nigeria's commercial capital. He has vast knowledge in Chinese culture and traditions and has contributed to transmitting same to many past and present students at the institution. Chimdi tells of how the mythical origin that predates the Chinese revolutionary era came to be such a strong cultural influence. The determination of the Chinese years um, is something legendary. There's a myth behind it. Animals were going to be chosen to mark the zodiac system, of course, 12 lunar calendars, and the animals were going to be 12. Various myths and tales converged, you know, there's multiple orality in these things, converged that it was going to be determined by how swift and fast the animals were. The first 12 to win the race 
will take places in the determination of the timing. Twelve animals became the notable ones in determining the naming of the Chinese calendar. The animals that made this race, in no particular order, were the pig, the rooster, the dog, the monkey, and the sheep, the rabbit, the horse, the snake, the dragon, the tiger, the ox, and the rat. Um, so, as a reward for their turning up, the emperor named a year in a zodiac after each of these animals. And this year has been labeled the year of the tiger. Chimdi explains what this means. But the Chinese tradition picks the animals to serve as a pattern for the human beings. So every year, human beings born in that year are supposed to either directly or indirectly influenced by the animal totem that controls the zodiac of the year. For example, those born in 2022 will take after the features of the tiger. They will be strong, they will be fierce, they will be uh, determined, you know, they will be quick, they will be witty, they will be resourceful. Experts have said that most of the culture and traditions that are not harmful to the current civilized, economically developed and sophisticated Chinese society are still accepted to date. As such, the Chinese culture is not an impediment but an enhancement to Chinese modernity, giving its color and uniqueness different from the Western culture or any other Oriental and Asian states. Kelechia Metalam, CGTN Lagos, Nigeria. In South Africa, where the majestic art of Chinese calligraphy is being taught in Cape Town as part of a Chinese New Year celebrations. With their brushes in hand and an abundance of enthusiasm, Cape Townians are learning how to combine Chinese characters as an art form. CGTN Stravas Andrews has more details. Chinese calligraphy is the writing of Chinese characters as an art form, and it's a pastime that is growing in popularity in Cape Town. In celebration of the Chinese New Year, the Wang Laoshi Mandarin Center put on a Chinese calligraphy lesson to give some Cape Townians a masterclass in the art form. Chinese characters is a very traditional um, art, and they can help people to stabilize themselves because when you do the calligraphy, you feel quite calm, and also like a um, you know, like uh, during the pandemic time, is everything's uncertain. The uncertainty makes people anxious, and this kind of art can really help people. With each brushstroke, participants gained more confidence as they learned about the basics of Chinese calligraphy and its meaning. The Mandarin Center gained more students like this, even against the backdrop of the pandemic, as interest increases in learning the language. And then how to uh, use Chinese characters is very useful. So the reason why um, people more and more... Uh, I can see our center is growing, even during the pandemic time, and people still... Uh, I can see our businesses still, like, uh, uh, increase. In the beginning, it might be decreased, but uh, you can see the pick it up already. For the very first lesson, some fared better than others, but many were showing a keen interest in bettering themselves. So I like painting in general, 
Um, but this is something very different, and of course I don't know what any of it means. So I think there'll be some more interest in that, in learning what it means, and maybe I could create something like that behind me at some point. That would be really nice. I am very interested in Chinese culture. This is an opportunity to introduce myself and learn more about the Chinese culture. It is difficult, yes. You need a lot of practice. Yes, it's difficult because it's my first time that I'm doing it. In the end, the lesson was all about having fun as well. And judging by the participants' reactions, the fun was found in abundance. Now, apart from the majestic art of Chinese calligraphy, the Mandarin Center also plans to host a tea party and a chess tournament so that more and more Cape Townians can immerse themselves in Chinese culture and traditions that date back ages and are steeped in history. Travis Andrews, CGTN, Cape Town. And it's time now for a quick break. Here's what's coming up right after this. Host Cameroon and Burkina Faso march into the semi-finals at the ongoing Africa Cup of Nations. And let's turn to the Africa Cup of Nations where Burkina Faso stunned much-fancied Tunisia 1-0 on Saturday to progress to the semi-finals in Cameroon. Teenager Dango Watara scored what would prove to be the winner of the stroke of half-time to ensure victory by a solitary goal in the quarter-final at the Rumde Agia Stadium. Tunisia had an earlier chance goal-begging when Wabi Ikari saw his free kick tripped over the bar in the 27th minute. But the North Africans found themselves behind when 19-year-old Watara held off two defenders to tuck the ball home in the third minute of stoppage time at the end of the first half. But his celebrations were curtailed in the second half when he was sent off for an elbow in the face of Tunisia substitute Ali Malul in the 82nd minute. Despite the setbacks, the Stallions held on to reach the semi-finals for a third time in the last five editions of the tournament and they will now face the winners of Sunday's quarter-final between Senegal and Equatorial Guinea. Allow me to dedicate this qualification to our people who, as you know, are going through hard times, even if at the moment the situation is stable. But I take advantage of this stage to pay homage to our people that, against all odds, are still standing up. And I said that our team is just like our people. We will keep standing up whatever happens. We are where we are. All that happened to us today is a bonus for us because I think we have largely fulfilled our part of the deal. And whatever happens from today on is really a bonus. We wished to be able to get through to the semi-finals and dedicate it to Tunisians. However, there have been lots of things happening since we arrived here. We will not mention them, lots of major destructive things. The players did their best in difficult circumstances, could not stop them giving it all. 
However, the result is always the responsibility of the coach. I take full responsibility. As for the players, they did their best. Meanwhile, these were the scenes in Ouagadougou as fans celebrated the team's progress to the semi-final stage of the ongoing tournament. The win comes five days after the landlocked country was thrust into political uncertainty when President Rock Mark Christian Kabore was ousted in a military coup. The win comes as a much-needed boost to football supporters in Burkina Faso. The West African side had, however, gone into the side knowing what they had won all three previous quarterfinals, which include two against Tunisia. Burkina Faso started with captain and Ashon Via forward Bethond Traore among 12 substitutes, while an injury also ruled out vice-captain and central defender Isofou Dayo. Football supporters in Ouagadougou expressed their joy with the side's performance in Cameroon. What the young people are doing today is really good. We're very happy. They're putting on the shirt for the nation, for the country. We're very happy for them, and we hope they will go further. It's true that the joy is there. We forget a bit the coup which has passed. Even then, we hope that with the cup, we will be reconciled on the national level. Meanwhile, in the earlier fixture on Saturday, Carl Toko Ekambi scored a brace as hosts Cameroon faced little trouble beating the Gambia 2-0 to become the first side to book a place in the last four. The indomitable Lions completely dominated the encounter at the Japoma Stadium against the lowest-ranked team coming into the 24-team tournament. Captain Vincent Abubakar had several chances to put his side ahead in the first half, but could not convert... A Welcome back, and you're listening to uh, the Pan-African Journal Worldwide uh, Radio Broadcast, and uh, we're going to conclude our program uh, for today. This has uh, been an enjoyable program, and if you'd like to have access to this program and other archived editions of the Pan-African Journal, all you need to do is go uh, to our website at the Pan-African Radio Network, and that's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. If you'd like to read the Pan-African Newswire, just go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. We'll be closing out uh, with the music of Dinah Washington, the legendary Dinah Washington. This is Abayomi Azikawe signing off, and have a beautiful week.
Thank you. 